Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO Podcast. If you're a chief executive or if you think like one and you want to create exponentially greater impact, then this show is for you. My name is Richard Medcalf, founder of Xquadrant. I coach some of the most successful and impressive CEOs and executive teams on the planet and help them achieve even more extraordinary results. Because no matter how successful you've been in the past, there's always a whole new level of impact available to you. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. Darren Comber is the CEO of Scott Brownrig. It's an architectural design firm that has repeatedly been listed as one of the top 1,000 companies to inspire Europe by the London Stock Exchange Group. And uh, Darren explains how when he, he started in the business, it was a 40-person business with £3 million of debt. And over the years, he's transformed that into one of the top 100 design practices globally. It's got true financial stability, and he's making an impact in the real areas that he, he set out at the very start. Darren has got three strategies for continual and sustained growth, and we dive into those. And really interestingly, he's taken a very radical model for employee ownership. A lot of leaders talk about wanting to give their employees a sense of ownership, but Darren's actually done it. He's put his money where his mouth is, and he's created a radically open employee ownership model. We also get into other issues. Uh, Scott Brownrigg is a heritage brand with a lot of history and he had to turn that round and do new things with it. And what were the lessons from that journey? So sit back, enjoy this conversation with Darren Comber. Hi, Darren, and welcome to the show. Good morning, Richard. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm going to enjoy this um, because I've already found out in just a few minutes of speaking with you that um, you've got a really different view from many leaders, I think, around growth and what it means. Your company, Scott Brownrigg, has has really been featured by the Financial Times in in view of the growth and success it's had. But what I understand for you is that the actual financial results are secondary to a larger impact that you want to make in the world. And this is the Impact Multiplier podcast. Let's let's jump right in there. Um, just let's go there. What is this growth that most excites you, or what's the impact that most excites you about the business? Well, actually, first of all, tell us what's the business. Let's go well, there. Okay, let and me then, what does, and then, then what's it all about? Why, why? What gets you up in the morning? Right. So we're an architectural firm. Um, we've got a long history, so we can trace our roots back to 1910. So the company's been around a long time, and over the decades, I guess it's fair to say it's changed um, enormously to remain relevant i think that's the key thing and it's a key theme that we've had about uh driving the business and driving growth in the business um so we have eight offices globally um where our head office is in common garden in um uh, in endell street and we have always had an international theme uh, as a practice so we were one of the first practices back in the 50s to really push the boundaries and, and export our mm. design services um, and that's been a theme that, that's that's run through for the practice um, in terms of growth though uh, something that we touched on it just in a you know, sort of uh, preamble before we started talking about it that uh, as you asked the question the 
it, for, for an architectural practice, it isn't about staff complement and numbers as a defining characteristic. So it isn't just, well, are we the biggest uh, uh, in the world? It's for me and for us, it's the defining characteristic has, mean, has been more about the services and skills that we can provide and the impact then that that has on uh, societal change and our ability to match the needs on the global platform. So, so size is important in one respect to be a global player. Uh, but in terms of does it have to be a prescribed number for us to be effective? No, it doesn't. Um, so let, let me just play that back for a second. So yeah, so what you're really saying is that the um, the size and the growth that you've seen has been the outcome of this desire to bring new skills and services. Absolutely, yeah. Bringing um, bandwidth, additional bandwidth to the practice has been really important. And I think that that's uh, important for a number of reasons. One is that it, it it makes the practice more diverse in terms of the skills that it can offer, uh, the elements of um, um, uh, influence we can actually bring to the table as well. But in other senses, it also is quite important that it, it makes us less vulnerable to the vagaries of the markets. And that's really, really important. As, as an architectural practice, we very much are, um, uh, our, our fortunes are very much predetermined by the economy, as most are, but uh, very much in the construction world and you know, uh, where we sit we do have to have a diverse platform from which to to uh, build. And we found that in being an international player, that has given us, if you like, some degree of insulation as markets have um, either developed in certain parts of the world and perhaps pressed in others. Uh, but what is a constant is that the skills that we have are, are required and actually sought work worldwide. So, so that is the constant and the other movable feasts um, have worked around that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, actually that portfolio piece you just mentioned, I think is often key for companies over the long haul. Uh, in this series around sequence of scaling, I've seen repeatedly this idea of almost all the companies have had some sort of portfolio, some kind of diversity that's held them ride out different market shifts in different parts of the world. Let, let's fast jump into your own story. Um, what I understand is when you took over the, the company, uh, Scott Brownrigg, when you actually went in and I think you, you bought it out, uh, the company was pretty much on its knees. So what each, well, you know, tell us that story. When was that? What was the company when you found it? And by way of comparison, where are you now, perhaps in terms of revenues or people, yeah, well, or whatever you want to well, I, Okay, well, I, I joined, the, the practice obviously was very, very successful um, leading up to or through the 80s. And many architectural practices um, uh, <clears throat> were in the same position. In the 90s, we had some big projects that really took out a lot of profits of the company. And it, it was a partnership at that time. A lot of partners left, took a lot of money out of the company. And as a result, the, the company had a significant debt at that time. So when I joined back in 95, the debt, I think, was around about three million, which um, is a lot of money now, but it was an awful lot of money then. Um, and we were supported by the banks after a while to trade out of that. Uh, we had a very small staff complement. I was just a, a junior uh, at that point. Right. But I saw an opportunity and I thought, you know, this this practice has a really good brand um, and there was an opportunity to be part of a team. So I definitely wouldn't claim, lay claim to I was the one that rebuilt it uh, solely, but I was willing to be part of that team 
um, that would uh, build on the great foundations and the heritage brand that Scott Brownrigg has always enjoyed. So, so it was more about the opportunity rather than the uh, um, a single point in time then. And then over that period of time, we looked at how we could reshape the business. What were the things we needed? How do how could we include people in as part of that journey? Make it more attainable to a wider network of people within the business as well. So, going from a partnership, we then transitioned into a limited company, um, where the shareholding was quite narrow, uh, just to the board directors, and I wasn't on the board at that time, and so. I, I had an insight into thinking, well, this isn't really sort of equitable. If you want buy-in, there was an opportunity to get more more shareholders across the business. So over time, um, and when I joined the board, so I've sat on the board now for 20 years. Uh, so I've seen quite a lot of coming and going, and 12 of those years I've been chief executive. Uh, but it was really my desire to widen out that share ownership to get participation, so um shareholder participation and it really did work because about by the time at its height we had about a third of the company as shareholders and and everybody had that real sense of ownership Mm. and I think the the ownership is is something that I always felt quite passionate about because um, for many owning shares is a statement of ambition and that ambition, I think, can be something that you can really then translate into actions and positive actions. So we've been a team for a long time, I think it's fair to say. Uh, the ownership was a, an EBT. Uh, so we transitioned partnership to a limited company, which was uh, administered through an EBT. And in 2021, so last year, we transitioned to a full EOT, so 100% employee ownership trust. And that's brought an even wider dynamic now uh, that leads to, you know, an enhanced succession strategy uh, for the business. So, so yeah, we've, we've come along a journey, really. And it, it is, has been one of wanting to, um, I guess, play with the, play in a scenario where uh, everybody... Is, has the ability to be a master of their own destinies. Uh, the the uh, output can be measured by the input that goes into it. So so I, I you know I've always you know worked quite hard as many many people do, uh, but sometimes you don't see the output. Uh, but as long as you're satisfied that you've done the best you can, um, then. Uh, you know, we see a different picture and where the practice is now. So we went from, you know, very small practice. We had uh, only 13 staff when I joined in London. We, I think we had a total complement about 40. Uh, we had quite a small turnover. Um, and now we are in the top 100 architects in the world. We're ranked in the top 100 in the world. We're in the top 20 in the UK. Um, we have eight offices globally, uh, including New York, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and then a series of other um, offices. So we we do have now a very global reach and we're a stable company. We've uh, invested, we've bought our own property. So we've built a platform from which we've got real financial stability. And that that has really helped us um, iron out the peaks peaks and troughs of the economic market uh, to have that stability in the business. And it allows us to do the things that we really want to do, and that is essentially design uh, buildings and infrastructure and environments that people can enjoy. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, 
yeah and getting to that place where you say you've got the freedom to do those things without looking over your shoulder uh or you know at, at this quarter by itself or whatever it happens to be which yes is great for in an uncertain world um what about um what did you do really well looking back you know obviously ownerships is a big theme and i think it's great because often people talk about creating a sense of ownership well one shortcut to doing that is to actually make people owners right um which is which is fantastic and i can see how that plays out for you uh what are the other things that you think looking back would you know are real parts of your success formula that you've been able to to roll out so so i guess some thought so i guess the um one of the the biggest things uh that i think we have done well and that is you know acknowledging that many people have contributed to this I, i've really just been uh, the conductor in many respects on this people have contributed in uh, enormous ways but what we've done as uh, as a as a practice is we've added skills uh, diversified our offer we opened new offices acquired businesses uh, secured high profile projects and within that defined new ownership structure it gave us the opportunity to generally look forward so we were always looking forward mm. um I think you mentioned I don't look over my shoulder. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder uh, to make sure that what's behind is what we want. But I think that ability to look forward is really important. And there's three key areas that have built that. Um, The first one is what I'll define as expansion aligned with the business vision. And we built that on uh, the principle of three horizons. So um, horizon one, obviously, is is the core business. Uh, Horizon two is where we extended that. Uh, core business and horizon three is the bit that I like to think that sometimes I'm in is where the uh, crazy entrepreneurs are um, looking at things that we may never do but if we needed to explore them to see whether they would they would work for us and so we created our own horizons uh, through new avenues of interest that added width to what we have done Mm. and that gave us an enduring practice rather than something that's quite temporary and chasing new you know, fashions. We wanted something to look at what's relevant in society, not just today, but where's it moving and what, what added skills would we need to meet the demands. And, uh, and that's really, really quite important, that trying to uh, or, or remaining relevant is probably one of the most important characteristics and why we've been around over perhaps 100 years. Uh, and for that one, I would, you know, add in things like uh, new technologies we've embraced um, that are particularly relevant to the built environment. And we've done that through links with other businesses as well. So outside of architecture. So a good example would be looking into the world of Formula One and seeing what they do. Um, and we have our own digital twin business. Now, that's not new. A digital twin isn't new in certain areas, but in the built environment, it is very new, um, and it isn't something um, that is mainstream at the moment. But we have a business, the digital twin unit, that was set up specifically to look at the built environment. So that right. added bandwidth um, to what we um, did. Um, I guess the second one is is focusing then on capability, talent, and succession. Um so what I mean by that is obviously the capability of the business to deliver the strategy and vision through identifying what our capabilities are and then putting those into format plans. And, and what we've always had a, a view on is 
is looking towards what our goals and visions are and then designing the company to match that rather than the other way around, looking at the skills we have and saying, well, okay, where can we go with that? So we've always um, had that um, as a um, uh, as a goal. That's um, what I actually call, um, yeah, future back thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, often we, you know, I like to talk about future back and outside in. Mm-hmm. So what's the external environment we're in? How's it changing? And then work from that. Where often, otherwise, we're looking yeah. at what are our resources, existing capabilities, what yes. we want to do indeed. next, and that's a different, a different yeah. approach. Indeed, indeed, and, and I think to do that as well, we we focused on people um, and our product, and where we um, have looked to replace uh, individuals at certain time, people come and go. That's a natural thing to have churn in business, and we haven't sought to then just replace and replicate skills. What we've looked to do is add diversity. So we haven't tried to just find people in our own image. It's about saying, well, okay, the, you know, there's a whole raft of different skills out there, and if we can embrace them, and again, as I say, they're not just in architecture or lay in architects, um, they're in uh, different um, areas. And then the third item, which I probably, uh, which is the most important for us as architects um, um, is our product. And what we've done there is really this vertical and horizontal um, expansion of our product. So it aligns in a way to what I talked about with the three uh, horizons. But so they all sort of turn around each other because um, expansion of our core services has been absolutely fundamental uh, to building the business. Yeah, I love the way that you've really framed that out in such three nice ways, right? You've got this time dimension, you've got this kind of resources dimension, I guess, in terms of the capability. And then you've got, you know, what are you actually bringing to market in terms of the product? What would be an example perhaps of, you know, one of those where you, um, which might might have felt like a risk at the time, might have been a bit difficult for you to do, or you had some internal doubts about, but actually paid off. You know, is there something there where you think, am I even doing the right thing here? And yet, time proved you right. Yeah, I think I think that would be our in, international expansion. I guess um, I think the products, a lot of the things we're doing, they, they feed into each other so well that uh, their business is in their own right but also they support what we do uh, as architects. But I think one of the key uh, both strengths and actually one of the difficulties we had was our international expansion. And and I always sort of worked around this um, uh, view that, you know, first and foremost, you've got to have a plan. I think everybody sort of you know, would subscribe to that. But I read a, a really quite nice um, quote from somebody once about, uh, you know, maintaining a plan. And it, it reads kind of like this. The nicest thing about not having a plan is that failure comes as a complete surprise, but is not preceded by a period of worry and depression. And it was written by a chap called John Preston from Boston University. And I always muse on that one because, you know, there's positives and negatives and everything. It's kind of saying, yeah, oh, if you haven't got a plan, at least you haven't got to worry about it. But the key thing for me is that having a plan, and the reason why that's actually quite relevant is we, we define our five-year plan, but we make it flexible enough that things change over a period of five years. So it, it isn't so rigid that you can't say, okay, well, you know, we need to change course now. So we'll have defining qualities in there that has to that we have to meet. But one of those, and coming bringing it back, I guess, to the international dimension, um, internationally has been um, something that we've been committed to about developing our international footprint. 
And what we've learned over time is that we needed to be smarter at doing it. So mm-hmm. the ability to go into an international market and open a new studio uh, might sound, well, that's really easy, isn't it? You just pitch up and you, you open up and everyone says, oh, great, Brits are here and you know, the other. Well, that's not the case at all. Um, and, and I think because we tried to do it over, over time with our own uh, funds as well, that's presented certain challenges because it's difficult to grow when you are restricted by the capital that you have on offer. Um, we have been successful and we've achieved it, but it's taken longer than I would have liked uh, in many of those areas. So was, if I was doing that again, we've, we've, we've chosen to do uh, it under a different model now where we have a much smaller footprint and we uh, track everything back to the UK as well. So, so we're now a very integrated company rather than operating as uh, silos. It's something that we've never wanted to do. So we, we've avoided that silo mentality and we have a what's called one Scott Brown rig. So everybody is part of the same company. It, it doesn't matter where your uh, studio might be, whether it's in uh, Amsterdam, whether it's in New York, whether it's Singapore, you're, you all share resources and the skills go to where they're required rather than trying to develop a market in a particular area. So we found that that's more um, has been considerably more successful for us over time, rather than the idea of developing a studio in a market and trying to replicate what we had in the UK. Hi, this is Richard. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to tell you about my book, Making Time for Strategy, which is being released in January 2023. It deals with perhaps the number one challenge I've come across in my coaching work with top executives, how to get out of the weeds of operations and make time for the high impact strategic work that will lead to breakthrough results. If you're serious about multiplying your impact, you do need to elevate your use of time. So I highly recommend that you head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com where you can find out more about the book and download some free chapters. Now, back to the conversation. Right. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so you're able to flex around demand internationally a bit more. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. I've seen both of these things coming out. I think in professional services, my background was in consulting professional services as well. And, and I definitely saw stage of development of that company was that definitely the integrated model made a lot of sense and worked really well. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I've seen businesses and interviewed people on this podcast who have done extraordinarily well with the very let a thousand flowers bloom kind of approach, which prioritizes yeah. entrepreneurial zeal and empowerment in different regions. So it's really interesting how both models can, can work, but I think you have to commit to the right model, you know, to a model and, uh, and align around that. Mm, mm. No, was, there, was there anything that you did um that looking back you think was a mistake or it really made growth painful you know a, a lesson to avoid <laughs> if you like from your your long and illustrious journey um I think there's, a, there's some obvious things like you know never taking anything for granted uh you know sort of the ability to um acknowledge that a, a practice has history is a very core um, benefit, but it can actually hold you back as well. So um, a lot of people, we were, we we're very fortunate that the brand is well known in the architectural circle, but it's what it was known for. 
And, and that's what's really important that, you know, yes, having a brand. I mean, it's two things. I guess sometimes I've often said, well, it's better, better to be known for something than not be known at all, uh, which you have heard many times. But I think where you want to position your brand is really, really important. And and I think this is where we've if I go back, you know, maybe a decade or, or perhaps longer, um, we were known for certain things that weren't really where we wanted to take the vision of the practice. So we had that, in a sense, it held us back. Uh, so we made reference to it and it was it opened doors, but actually people thought we did something different. So we've had to change over time. So um, so I guess it, it wasn't necessarily it's a bad thing, but it's something we acknowledge that if you really want to be in a different place, you really do have to be aware that people perceive you for a certain thing. Well, and actually, guess- perception is, is such an interesting thing. When mm-hmm. I when I work um you know, often I'm asked to come in working with perhaps people in, in the leadership team who who might need to work on a, a key behavior, for example, to really, mm-hmm. you know, fulfill their potential. And um, and often there's two stages, one of which is the actual shift in behavior. Mm-hmm. But the second is the shift in perception, because even when we change what we're up to, the stakeholders around us, everyone's too busy thinking about themselves to really notice that you've changed. That applies to a company. It applies to individuals. It applies to all sorts of things. And actually managing perception, helping perception catch up with reality, um, you know, is the essential part of the process. Because without that, you might be doing all these other things, but people don't know, they don't realize, or they still have the same emotional reaction towards you or put you in yeah, the same no, bag. And I think, you know, the... the it, it's you know we're obviously talking about you know impact multipliers and and this is one of the key things for me that you know it has an exponential um uh, uh um impact if you like that by taking the practice and and outwardly branding it into the vision that you want it to go into then obviously you can attract more talent best talent you can retain the talent you have um, but also you you operate then in the markets you really want to. And one of the key things for us, and sustainability has really come onto the world stage in, in the last maybe five years. Uh, but I'll go back to 20 years ago when we really invested in it. We were uh, designing things like the um, Environment Agency's headquarters down in South Oxfordshire. It was It was in a time when it wasn't on anybody's radar. Uh, but we've built on that. And so now we're respected within our own profession that we are somebody that, you know, haven't just jumped on something and thought, great, this is going to be something good to do. It is something we've invested in over time. So we have a depth of knowledge and and a desire to go somewhere and to make that positive impact in everything that we do, um, whether it be through carbon reduction, whether it be through sustainable um, environments, um, how you get there, you know, what you do when, you, when you're there, all of those things are, are completely embedded. And, and that's been a key part of the golden thread of Scott Brownrigg for decades now. And, and now we're seeing that actually the, um, the vision that we have is one that is being embraced, uh, but we've all got a long way to go. So, so we won't track down into that one today, but, but it is quite interesting that if you, continue to develop to the theme of your vision then you can actually build uh, a you know very sustainable business Mm -hmm. as well because um, you don't get diverted to go over to what you think might be the new thing coming along you do stay on the track of what 
you know, you have as your core beliefs, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's so helpful. So, Darren, I'm just aware of time. Let's flip over perhaps to a little quick fire questions as we kind of try to draw this to a close. I think there's mm-hmm. been so many interesting things here. You know, I think you've done a, it's a really interesting um, insight into the way that you've taken this business that was so small and debt ridden and, and were quite intentional, I think, around, you know, around how you expanded, how you, how you built capabilities uh, and, and all these things and how you reshifted this, this whole brand uh, positioning to do what you wanted to do and to be pretty innovative by the sound of it with the Formula One, the digital twin, these other areas. Um, but I'm always curious as to what's going on in the in the depths of the leader. So what's a favorite quote that um, that inspires you, that perhaps you bore your team with on a regular basis? You know, what's what's shaped you? A favorite quote? I guess I don't really have a, um, a favorite quote, but I, I think that there's I've benefited through um, reading one of, you know, an author that I have a, a lot of time for, and I probably can go through all of these quotes, but Malcolm Gladwell has been a, mm. um, you know, a big impact, if you like, reading his books and, and seeing that actually it, it's society that changes things sometimes, not, you know, and the response to economic uh, circumstances. And out of those economic circumstances, good can actually come because it changes the whole narrative of where we are. And I think, you know, the pandemic, you know, obviously a significantly terrible um, mm. position for everybody. But we were all affected. And what we had to do was find our own ways of getting through it. So you utilize the skills that you have and you, you acknowledge that you can't do everything. But if you if everyone uses the skills they have, we can actually make a quantum shift in change. So I think that would probably be one. And then. I think for inspiration, for me, I've uh, Steve Jobs is is an, perhaps an obvious one for everybody, but uh, I think because it's aligned with product, and that's quite a lot of what we do. Right. Um, the the knowing you know you don't need it before you've got it sort of quote yeah. that wasn't his quote, but you know you understand exactly by by giving somebody something they didn't know they even wanted. I I think is absolutely phenomenal. And I think that, you know, we strive to do that, to create places, environments that people uh, enjoy. Mm. And they didn't realise that they could have that sense of enjoyment through something uh, yes. that we've done. So I think that's kind of what the relevance I'm trying to put into it rather than strictly business. Yeah, that's great. So what about a book? I mean, it sounds like Malcolm Gabriel's key author. Is there one book that you would you know pull out as a... As, as a key influence? I, I, well, I think let's stay on that theme. I think everyone has to read Outliers. Um, uh, the story of success and it isn't just about saying read this and you'll be successful I think it's it is that sort of sense of um, uh, you know the narrative of making the most of hidden advantages and extraordinary opportunities rather than just thinking that it's about exceptional people that that make that happen yeah so that's the key thing for me yeah 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 exactly it's uh, it's what you do with what you get um yeah, I love it. What about um, what advice would you give to you know your twenty year old self or to somebody who was twenty years old and get back to get stuck into things? Well, that's an interesting one because I've heard a lot about imposter syndrome recently, and I've listened to a number of podcasts, and and it, it comes up each time, and I think it exists in all of us. That's my view, so I'll give you my view. I think there's there's been times when I thought, well, you know, why have I been asked to do this? Um, 
surely somebody else is better suited to doing this. But, you know, I think that's a natural trait. And I think sometimes you don't have it, it doesn't keep you, you alive. But one of the things that I would track back to, I guess, on that is that when I started here in my 20s and I was given the role of lead designer, and, you know, bear in mind, you know, it was, it, it was a big task then to lead the design of a, you know, sort of firm such as this. And um, I, when I took on that role, I was asked at a dinner by somebody, uh, or rather they, they made reference and said, you know, you're awfully young to be doing this role. Do you think you can do it? And I, at that time, I just sat back and I simply said, well, I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> and that and that was really, I guess, before we all sort of delved into, you know, should I, you know, be worried about can I do it? It was a case of, well, <laughs> hopefully I can and we're going to find out. So, so, yeah, I think, you know, having that sort of confidence that you can uh, use your best abilities to advantage uh, for everybody uh, I think is one of the key things and look at the qualities you have rather than aspiring to the qualities that somebody else has got and and, and focus on those and, and embrace those. Listen to other people, learn from other people, I think is a massive thing. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to have good mentors along the way. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I have not done this on my own and I wouldn't pretend to have mm. done so. But what I have been able to do is use my qualities to surround myself with the best people. And that's allowed me to to um, grow the good qualities perhaps that I've got and focus on those. And then the bits that I haven't got, I, I bring those in. I don't try and sort of and that that gives us then a really effect, super effective team. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, your point around imposter syndrome, one of my little phrases is, you know, imposter syndrome uh, is a feature. It's not a bug. <laughs> uh, I actually wish my clients had more imposter syndrome because it means they're playing a big game. They're pushing the limits. Yeah. They're getting out of their comfort zone. Indeed. They're not staying complacent. And they're and yeah. you know, comfort zone is when your competency exceeds your confidence levels. That's what's going on. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a good place to be, actually. So I guess my favorite question, Darren, you know, no matter how much we've achieved, there's always a next level to get to. So what's the next level for Scott Brownrigg? What, what are you guys up to next? So we've got some, uh, we've got some, Fantastic projects uh, coming along that uh, we're working on at the moment. I think for us, it is about uh, the really being credible on the international stage in terms of our um, building stature. And I, I don't know when you ever reach that, uh, if you like, but, you know, we we are known worldwide. And I think that that's important uh, to us that we continue to have a make an impact or or contribution on the world stage. So I think that's where we want to go, if you like. So contributing in areas that perhaps don't have some of the knowledge or um, access to mm. talent that we are fortunate to have. So mm. you know, taking that elsewhere, that's one of the key things for me. And and I think for me as well, the sort of legacy aspect. And, and what I mean by legacy is about maintaining an environment where people can create and achieve something. So that's so that for me is, is wider than you know what do I want to achieve. I think for me the legacy, um, you know, going forward is to maintain an environment where you can make that positive difference, where you you can eventually look back on your career and say I really achieved something with the skills I had, rather than I wish I'd done that. Yeah, absolutely. That's what impact's all about, right? This is why I love the word impact, because it, it speaks to financial success, but it actually speaks to this sense of, you know, legacy. What do I actually create? 
uh, that, that really moves my soul and, and I'm satisfied about. Yeah. Um, Darren, what would you need to do differently yourself, right? How do you need to reinvent yourself if you want to multiply your own impact? Uh, I think what we need to do is continue as a business to um, broaden out our succession plan. So now that we're in an EOT, I think we have a great opportunity to allow uh, greater talents to come through and actually have a, a massive impact on on where we go. So I think that that's that's quite key to allow that. And I think you know, as a CEO, that's always um, a challenge because you know you've driven something and you and and letting parts of it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, are quite difficult but it's absolutely fundamental that, that that happens and it isn't about letting go it's about saying um you know you can't fail at doing this it's you need to try it and and I think you know being there and and widening out our team is one of the things that I'm going to look to do uh in the uh you know in the future and I think that that's really really important because I've always had the opportunity to be part of that team uh, perhaps as you know very much as a leader but I think you know leadership comes in very different forms and I think you know we're going to see over the next decade the whole landscape change in what that really means and I just think it's a really really exciting time so yeah I'm very fortunate I've never had a job I have a, a career that just as as and a hobby that's allowed me to do the things that I love beautiful so Darren if people want to get in touch with you or, or with the business uh, how do they do that um anybody can email me on d.comba at scottbrownry.com happy for that um happy to pick the phone up to people uh if they'd like to call me as well with um you know sort of things that are interesting to them uh i think that sort of ability to interact with with people that want to share your values is fundamental uh and it adds to the enjoyment of everything so it doesn't have to just be in the field of architecture we've as I mentioned earlier, you know, our greatest success has been actually looking outside of the sphere of what we do and embracing other technologies because we all have something to offer. And when you bring them together, uh, you know, you really get some great things happening. So, yeah, feel free to uh, contact me, please. So this has been great. Thank you, Darren. I've really enjoyed hearing uh, about some of the mechanics of what you got up to and and how you've led the business over the last a uh, couple of decades I guess um, but I've also enjoyed hearing about your heart right the impact you want to make the kind of values that come out I think here around team and sharing it out right to the extent of employee ownership but I think also just the way that you you've called other people out said it's not your own it's not just you it's it's the team um, all these things I think that both of those things come through the, the business acumen uh, and the desire for impact so I've really enjoyed this conversation um, looking forward to continuing to hear about the journey thank you Richard well thank you it's been a pleasure talking to you I hope you enjoyed this conversation now let's talk about you when you're in top leadership when you're in the biggest role of your career Who supports you at a deep level as you lead others? Who helps you multiply your impact and get to the next level? If you're ready to learn more about our content, our coaching and our community, then visit us at xquadrant.com.